and go to the book of Genesis. We're going to cover a lot of ground tonight as we continue in our study, The Women of the Bible. I told you that we were uh, changing focus last week as we concluded our last Wednesday evening Bible study, and we're moving emphasis now to some character studies of women in the Bible. And this evening, we are considering Sarah, uh, a woman who hoped in God. And I'm going to tell the story from a number of different places in Genesis, as well as some other places in the Bible where she is referenced. And uh, the focus is on the integral part that women have always played in God's kingdom. And the Bible introduces us to many women whose lives can teach us valuable lessons in both their actions to follow as well as their actions to avoid. Uh, the women as the men are um, character studies in both good and things not so good uh, that we can learn from. And I shared a, an excerpt with you last week from Katie Orr in a piece that she entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Women? And here's what she said in part, and I want to repeat this this evening for emphasis. Uh, Throughout the tapestry of the Old and New Testaments, we see a steady thread of God's intentional choice and good plan to include and honor women. In each and every historical period represented within the biblical world, it was normal for women to be oppressed, neglected, and even objectified as property. It is with this as the backdrop that God shockingly to those of that day consistently and purposefully invites women to be a part of his redemptive plan to rescue the world from their sin. The last time we learned about Eve, the mother of all the living, we focused on her creation by God and the special event that took place that brought that about, as well as her transgression that was a part of sin entering into the world, and then ultimately her salvation and the redemption that came through her. And God said to Eve, as part of the consequence of the fall, in Genesis 3 and verse 16, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The next significant husband and wife relationship in the Bible illustrates a wife's relationship to her husband in Sarah and Abraham. And it would be impossible to tell the story of Sarah without telling the story of Abraham as well. And I want to start by focusing on the fact that God's will for Sarah's life was to be a mother of nations. Sarah was the wife of Abraham, as we'll learn here in just a moment. She was childless until she was 90 years old and when she became the mother of Isaac. Uh, Sarah is commended twice in the New Testament, once for her faith and a second time for her submission to her husband. Both of those carry significance. The story begins in the city of Ur, near the ancient coast of the Persian Gulf. Uh, Sarai and Abram had the same father, but different mothers, according to Genesis 20 and verse 12. You say, well, how could that be? Well, in those days, genetics were certainly purer than they are today. Uh, As the race was propagated, uh, the intermarriage was not detrimental to the offspring of those unions. It was a part of God's original plan that it be that way. Also, since people tended to spend their lives uh, together in family units, it was natural to choose their mates as they did from within their own tribes and even their own families, and that's certainly the case with her. And Genesis 12 records the calling of Abram and the promise, the covenant that God made with him. Now, 
just as a way of context, this is reiterated in Genesis 15 and then again in Genesis 17. We're not going to read all of that, but I do want to read the first three verses of Genesis 12. And here's what the Lord said to Abram. He said, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we find this thread that is tied at the beginning in Genesis 3 and verse 15, now being woven into Genesis 12 with the calling of Abram. And all of this story has to do with the Messiah. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that would ultimately be in Christ. And the promise is beginning to be unfolded here in Genesis 12. God's going to choose this man. He's going to make a nation from among this man's offspring, not because they deserved it, not because they were more plentiful than anybody else, not because they were of any special stature other than that was God's goodwill and pleasure to do it that way. And through the nation that he would raise up, the Messiah would come. But not only that nation, the nation of Israel would be blessed, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of Messiah. We today are beneficiaries, most of us primarily as Gentile beneficiaries, of that promise that was made, that was started in Genesis 3, and then began to unfold in Genesis 12. So Abram did what God said, and with his father Terah, his nephew Lot, and his wife Sarah, began the journey north to the city of Haran. And there is a reference in Hebrews 11 and verse 8 that I want to interject at this point, and here's what it says. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. This was an early step of faith. And this is the nature of faith itself, that we step out when God calls, even if we don't know where we're going. It wouldn't be faith if we had all the details. It wouldn't be faith if all the steps had been predicated and told to us before we went. It's faith because we're going on what we know. And then as we go on what we know, God unfolds other things to us and he blesses our obedience of faith. And I think Sarah, even though she's not mentioned in Hebrews 11 and verse 8, I think her faith was every bit as steadfast as Abraham's ultimately. Uh, her parents called her Sarai, which means princess. Uh, it may have described her beauty, which is referred to twice in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, perhaps she had a cultured upbringing or an extensive uh, education for that time, at least. Uh, maybe she had personal charm. We don't know for sure. But later on, when God changed her name, he would add to that not just princess, but also motherhood, which was the part of her significance in her life. Now, she was the beautiful, uh, honored daughter of uh, who would have been Chaldeans from the land of Ur. Uh, and um, her name is Sarah until God changes it to Sarah upon the covenant that he makes with Abraham. And her family as well, being tied in with Abram's family, was a family of pagan polytheism. 
uh, they would not have known the worship of the living God. In fact, it's said that in that culture, there were as many as 2,100 different gods that the people worshipped. So they were all kinds of confused about who they were supposed to be worshipping. And I think it's likely that she was a pagan herself until she came under the tutelage of Abram uh, and her future husband, uh, who was, of course, about 10 years her senior. Now, while Eve was called the mother of all the living, Sarah is called a mother of nations. In Genesis 17 and verse 5 and following, it says, God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, evidently, Abraham's father refused to go on when they reached Haran. Uh, He was an idol worshiper, and the city was probably a suitable place for that. And when Terah died, Abraham, who was 75 years old, left that place, and he began to make his journey toward the promised land. With him was Sarah. And her faith would be tested, but her submissiveness would be tested as well. And even in the midst of her faith being tested... God would work through her to fulfill his promise to Abram and to her and for his purpose for the nations. And that brings me to the next point, and that is God's will for Sarah's life included struggles of faith. It included struggles of faith. Now, here's how the story went. Soon after they entered uh, Canaan, uh, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham decided uh, to leave the place which God had promised and go to Egypt. And Abraham led in this direction without seemingly considering the implications of his decision. And as they came near the place that they were going to, Abraham said to his wife in Genesis 12, in verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Now, let me just say here, it was a tribute to Sarah's beauty, uh, even with uh, better genetics and longer lives, that at 65 years of age, she was still so beautiful that Abraham thought that the Egyptians might try to kill him for her. So this just gives us some insight into this woman who was created by the hand of God. And in Genesis 12 and verse 14, it says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Abraham thought they might kill him to get his wife, but treat him as an honored uh, guest if they thought he was her brother. And in fact, he turned out, at least in part, to be right. And here's what Genesis 12 and verse 16 says. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Now, let me just ask the obvious question here. Why in the world would she have gone along with such a scheme? Well, first of all, she was submitting even in that uh, to her husband. But I think also she was believing in the promise that had been given, and maybe in her mind she's thinking, Well, if I go along with this, we'll we'll both survive, and maybe what he said will actually happen. We don't know for sure, but ultimately, even the pagan king 
rebuked him for what he did. And it says in Genesis 12 and verse 18 and following, so Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why'd you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He failed her in that moment, but note that God was still faithful and he honored her and he delivered her. God does not forsake us when we trust in him. Even when the people around us might make poor decisions, even if we go along with the poor decisions, even if we get ourselves in a terrific predicament, God is not going to forsake us when we trust in him. Now, you know how this story goes. About 20 years later, uh, he does the exact same thing with Abimelech, king of Gerar, in Genesis 20. This shows again how weak, faithful people can be. I mean, this man was covenanted with by God, and he submitted to that, but yet he does something again that's not smart. What'd she do? She submitted again, and yet God delivered her. And it says in Genesis 16 that Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now we're back at backtracking just a little bit here, but this is a very important point because this is really the heart of the story of Abram and Sarah or Abraham and Sarah. God was about to change Abram's name to Abraham from exalted father to a father of a multitude. Uh, Sarah comes up with this human scheme because she's not had any children that she's going to offer the Egyptian maidservant Hagar so that Abraham might have a son with her. Now, on one hand, she believed that God would keep his word and that he would keep his word by giving her a son in this way. But here's the problem. That was not God's way. That was not what God wanted to happen. This was not his plan. And we need to learn from delays in God's timing not to make the mistake of trying to solve matters on our own. And all of us are prone to do that because we feel like God's leading us in a direction or we've been praying for something and we feel like that it's God's will for our lives or for our family. And then it doesn't happen. We begin to start thinking, well, that prayer didn't get answered. So what shall I do? And we start thinking of ways that we can solve our own problems or ways that we can get what we want. And rather than waiting on God's timing of something that he wants to do in our lives, we can get impulsive. And this impulsive sin had a negative effect on the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. Hagar, as you know, became pregnant. Sarah blamed Abraham for the whole problem when it was her idea that got him into the predicament to begin with. And so she deals harshly with Hagar. And it revealed the bitterness and the resentment that she had in her soul. Uh, Abraham, being the leader that he was, should have said no in the first place. But here's another reminder. Even believing people can step into sin or fall into faithlessness. Even believing people can willfully step into sin or fall into faithlessness. And that happens typically when we get our eyes off of God, we get our eyes on the situation. When we get our eyes off of what has been promised, whether it's in his word or through prayer or through circumstances, 
and we start looking to try to solve our own issues. And no moment was worse than when they laughed at God. Let me just tell you, laughing at God is not a good idea. But they both did so. God told Abraham he would bless Sarah and make her a mother of, of the nations. Kings of peoples would come from her. And Genesis 17 and verse 17 says that Abraham fell face down and then he laughed. And he said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So what did Abraham do? He made it worse. He tried to get God to accept Ishmael as the heir. And in Genesis 17 and verse 18, Abraham's having this conversation with God. And he says, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. It's like, what's wrong with you, God? I thought you were going to promise me a son. Why is Ishmael not acceptable to you? And God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for, your future, for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. So the Lord appears to Abraham in the person of a visitor to his tent. And Sarah heard him say in Genesis 18 and verse 10, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. And now she was listening and she laughed to herself saying, Genesis 18 and verse 12, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have a delight? Will I have delight? Why'd she say that? Because her faith was shaking. How many times do we limit God? If it wasn't something that needed faith, then it wouldn't be big enough that it would stretch us. And if it's not something that's beyond what our little meager horizons are, we wouldn't need faith to begin with. But when we get in those moments of faith, sometimes we get limited vision and we forget that God is who he says he is. If, if God can speak creation into being, certainly he can do something here if that was his specific will to do it, and it was. And I want you to know that the struggles of faith are real, and we all encounter them from time to time. In Genesis 18 and verse 13, the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? And then he asked the question of all questions, is anything impossible for the Lord? Church, if there's ever been a rhetorical question, this is it. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything too hard for God? And he says, at the appointed time, I will come back to you in about a year, she'll have a son. And things changed from that moment on. Romans chapter 4, there's a reference to this, beginning in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver, speaking of Abraham, in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Are you fully convinced that what God has promised, he's able to do? Think about it in terms of 
your life and the things that God has promised to you to be faithful in. Think about it in terms of your eternity and what God has said he will provide for you as his child. Anytime you get weak and you begin to question those things, you need to ask yourself the question, is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything too hard for God? And remind yourself of what God has promised and know that he is always faithful to what he has promised. And we ought to be fully convinced that what God has promised, he is also able to do. And then in Hebrews 11 and verse 11, there's a reference that says, by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Now, what do we get out of that? They had a struggle of faith, but when it came down to it, when it came down to the bottom line, they said, God can do it. That's what they said. They, They laughed, they struggled, they questioned, they tried to solve the problems themselves. But when it came down to it, they said, God can do it. And that's the kind of faith that we need to live with. We need to live with the kind of faith that says, God can do it. And if God has promised it, it is as good as done. And it says in Hebrews 11 and verse 12, Therefore from one man, in fact from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Now you know how their faith was rewarded. It was rewarded and they had Isaac, which means laughter. Um, Isaac was the second of the patriarchs of Israel and of course was the father of Esau and Jacob. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because uh, of his relationship with the promise and the purpose that was fixed for these people. But Sarah tells us why they gave him uh, the name that they did of Isaac. Uh, It was God's will, but the laugh of doubt turned to a triumphant joy. But yet their problems were not over. And why were their problems not over? Because... Uh, Hagar and Ishmael were still around, and Hagar was upset about their circumstance. And it says in Genesis 21 that the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised, and she became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. And they named him Isaac. When he was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. And Sarah said, God has made him laugh, verse 6, And everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Now, what about Hagar and Ishmael? What do we make of them? Well, uh, they were sent away, according to verse 8 and following. And um, God actually told Abraham to listen to Sarah and do what she said. And it says in Genesis 21 and verse 12, But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says, do you listen to her? Because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And she sent him away. You say, what are we to make of that? Well, the conflict between the descendants of Isaac, ultimately the Jews, and the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, began then... And it continues today. That's what we're to make of it. So there are consequences to the fact that they try to take matters in their hands as they did. And they're even carrying on 
today. Now, there's a whole other message and story that could go along with that, but I want to draw that point out because it is an important point as it relates to the covenant and prophetic history and modern times and so on. But in that moment, even though the issue seemed to be settled, what was about to happen? Another test was coming. And the test that was coming was in Genesis 22. And that was when Abraham was told to offer up the sacrifice. And the sacrifice would be his son Isaac. Now, Sarah's name does not appear in this chapter, but I think it's probably likely she helped him prepare for the trip. Uh, she had to have seen the wood and the fire and the, the knife and, and known that they didn't have an animal that they were taking with them for the sacrifice. But here's something interesting later on that we get some commentary on that gives incredible insight into what happened. Now, you, you know the outcome of it. Abraham did exactly what God told him to do. He offered his son. He bound him there on the altar. And then God provided the ram in the thicket, right? And that was a foreshadowing of what God would provide in his one, one and only son in the perfect sacrifice. But there's commentary in Hebrews 11 and verse 17 that tells us something incredibly important um, through verse 19. Here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son. Similar language to the one and only son of God. The one to whom it had been said, verse 18, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Now, here's the commentary we get in verse 19. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. That's telling us that in that moment, in that Genesis 22 narrative, when God's saying, take your only son and go up the mountain and you offer him as a sacrifice, in that moment, Abraham's thinking, if necessary, God can raise him from the dead. Do you see the incredible growth of faith and the progression of faith in the lives of these people? And how they trusted God without hesitation. And I think Sarah must have believed it as well. And it may have been their most significant display of faith in the midst of the struggles of faith. And that leads me to the next and final point. God's will for Sarah's life was also one of submission. Now, we find this reference in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn over there in the New Testament, I'm going to read several verses here because it speaks of um, Abraham and Sarah and this issue of submission. And then I'm going to go a little deeper in that because there is a lot of misunderstanding about what this even means. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And now here it is, for in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers 
will not be hindered. Now, what in the world uh, does submission mean and what does it not mean? Because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about this. Uh, Wayne Grudem, the theologian, uh, gave uh, some bullet points of what, first of all, submission does not mean. And I want to share those with you just briefly. And he said, first of all, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. Allegiance to Jesus Christ is always the priority. It's always the priority. And it is a mutual submission to Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost in the whole deal. He's the one to whom we all collectively submit. And then as we talked about last week, God orders roles and relationships not based on value or importance, but based on how he has designed the world to function. And that can be done in a healthy and Christ-honoring way, a Christ-submitting way, regardless of what our role or our function is. Grudem says also submission does not mean giving up independent thought that Peter assumes that wives will hear and understand and respond to the word of God for themselves. So this is not a going away of independent thought or a contribution in that regard to be able to understand what God's word is saying and following on your own. Submission, Grudem says, does not mean that a wife should give up efforts to influence and guide her husband. In fact, the example that is given here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that of a godly wife who is influencing an ungodly husband. Now, we know that the Bible indicates that two people are not to be unequally yoked for what has light to do with darkness. So nobody should willingly make a decision to connect themselves and to marry an unbeliever. Knowing that, a believer should not do that. However, sometimes two lost people get married, and then one of them comes to know Jesus Christ as her Savior, often the wife, and then how she to live a pure and holy life because her pure and holy life and her uh, testimony by the way that she lives can be an influence on her husband to become a Christian. Now, it's not advisable either if you are a believer to connect yourself with an unbeliever and marry an unbeliever thinking that somehow you're going to change them because the likelihood is that you will never change them. You can't count on that. You don't go against a direct, a direct commandment in Scripture not to be unequally yoked because somehow you think you're going to change something that has to come from a person's heart. But that's what submission does not mean also. It doesn't mean you should, you should give up efforts to influence and guide your husband. Submission does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. You say, well, how would you draw the line on that? If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. That's how you draw the line. A wife is not expected to do anything that is contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the scripture, contrary to the character of God. And that's not what submission means. And it's important that we note that. A submission has nothing to do with intelligence or competence or any of that. It has more to do with roles and functions in the world. And then also, Grudem says, submission does not mean being fearful or timid. In fact, wives are told not to give way to fear. And if you're in a situation where you think that submission means to be fearful or timid, you got a problem. You, it, it's not a healthy situation. And you probably should seek some help and some counsel because 
a man who is honoring Christ is going to do everything possible to honor his wife and to serve his wife and do everything he can to help her grow in her faith and to help her flourish in her relationship with Christ, not put her in some type of position of fear or intimidation. That would be sin and that would be contrary to what God's word teaches. And then the last thing that uh, Grudem says is that submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. We talked about this last week, Galatians 3.28. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. This has nothing to do with our spiritual relationship with God or our standing in grace or anything like that. Again, it just simply has to do with role and function in the world. So here in summary is what submission is. It is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms God-given roles and leadership in the home. Submission comes from the Latin word, which means to let down, to reduce, or to yield. It's also a military word that was used that meant to put under or to arrange under. So because all authority comes from God, we submit to him, we submit to Christ, we submit to his word. And then we submit mutually to one another. And then there's that healthy husband-wife relationship for those who are married uh, to submit in that regard as well. And I think another step where this has been taken too far at times is that the, the submission and what this means biblically, of course, there are certain roles and functions within the New Testament church about uh, who's supposed to be leading and who's supposed to be teaching whom and, and how all that works out. But sometimes in a, in a domineering kind of a way, Christian men have gotten the attitude that all women are supposed to submit to them. And that's not right. You're, you're submitting to the one that you're married to. You're submitting to Christ. You're submitting to what your role is within the function of the church. But that's it. And it's within that relationship that God has designed of how that's supposed to be carried out. And it can be done in a healthy way. And what I've always said is if this is done in a biblical way and everybody is functioning as they're supposed to be, nobody's going to have a problem with it. The reason people have problems with it is because people get the wrong idea about what it is and they use it over people to try to dominate them in some way or to, to try to get their way a lot of times. And it ends up being something that Christ never intended to begin with. But if it's in a healthy way and it's a Christ-honoring way and it's a word-affirming kind of way, then it can certainly be something that everybody can understand and live according to. And I think that's certainly what Sarah did. Now, Scripture says in Genesis 23 that Sarah lived for 127 years, and these were all the years of her life. And she died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And in Genesis 23, in verse 19, it says... After this, Abraham buried his wife, Sarah, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, uh, near Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as burial property. So let me give you some concluding lessons from Sarah's life uh, before I wrap up this evening. And I'll give these kind of rapid fire, so just bear with me. The first is that God is able to deliver us even when we get ourselves in a predicament. We already touched on this. But whatever predicament we might get ourselves in, however wise or unwise it might be, God can deliver us because he's going to carry out his purposes. And then God continues to love us 
even if there are consequences for our decisions. He confronts unbelief so that we will see things from his perspective. And sometimes he uses those consequences to teach us, but he never stops loving us. So don't you ever think, if you get yourself in a predicament, number one, that God can't do anything about it. Don't you ever think, if you get yourself in a predicament, that God doesn't love you or that he loves you less. That's not how his love is predicated. It's based on his character, not on what you are or aren't doing at the moment. And sometimes we say, well, well uh, God never loves you more than when, or God never loves you less. Well, that's, that's human words that are not very accurate because God's love is not on a sliding scale for his children. God's love is what it is because it's based on who he is. God will not be rushed. He acts in his timing to accomplish his will. God will not be rushed. He acts in his timing to accomplish his will. Now, if we had time tonight, you could give testimony about how you've gotten ahead of God a few times. I've gotten ahead of God a few times in my life and suffered the the pain from it. I've also gotten behind him a few times when he was prodding me and leading me to, to do something. And I was dragging and he wanted me to do something. But even so, he still worked through that. And thankfully, another lesson is that God can work even through or maybe even especially through weak faith. I am thankful that God works through weak faith and that it's not about how big our faith is, but it's about how big the God is in whom we place our faith. And God brings us to the end of our strength so that we will trust in his ability to do the impossible. How would we see that God has done the impossible if we could do it in our strength? How would we ever experience that? Is it not those circumstances where we we get to the end of ourselves and then God says, now let me show you something. And he does something big that is beyond what we could have even asked or dreamed of. And when he brings us to the end of ourselves and our own strength, we see his strength to do the impossible. You see, Sarah, the mother of the nations, is legendary for her enduring faithfulness to God and her unswerving commitment to her husband. Characteristics abound as she is described as faithful, beautiful, steadfast, caring, submissive, fearless at some points. Volumes have been written about her, and she's a person that is revered even today because of those things. And I would say she is notably one of the most important female figures in the history of the world through whom the nations of the earth were to be born and blessed. Now I want to share one more passage of scripture with you because the Apostle Paul refers to Sarah as the free woman in Galatians 4. What do you mean by that? Here's what he says. Galatians 4 and verse 22 to 26. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. He's pointing to the fact of what God did through them. And here's the summary. We are children 
of the promise as Isaac was. We are. We're the beneficiaries of it. And Sarah and Abraham are now counted as our ancestors in the faith if we have faith. And here's what it says in Galatians 3 and verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs according to the promise. And that is the message that resonates throughout the Bible. Go back and read the early chapters of Romans sometime and see what God's Word says. If you're trying to work for it, then if it were credited to you as salvation, that would be wages. But we don't get wages, we get a debt. And it's our sin that has caused the debt. But if we believe by faith, as Abraham did, which God's Word clearly says, he believed by faith before the law was ever given, then it is credited as righteousness. And because of this woman, and because of how God used her in the life of Abraham, her husband, we too are the children of promise. So don't ever skip over these characters in the Bible and think that they might not be as significant as someone else. They're there for a reason, and Sarah's certainly there for a reason, and we can learn a lot from her. Let's bow our heads together as we pray and come toward a close tonight. Father God, we thank you that we are children of the promise. How are we children of the promise, Father? By faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came through the promise of Genesis 3.15, the one who was promised because of the blessing of the nation of Israel and the blessing of the nations in Genesis 12, and because of his death, burial, and resurrection and his fulfillment of the law leading up to that, we can be redeemed. We thank you, God, that you don't credit us, credit us with, with uh, just being debtors as we are because of our sin, but you credit us with righteousness, and it's a gift. So I pray for everybody here tonight. God, I don't know, there may be some here who have never received the gift. They, they're not Christians. They, they wouldn't go to heaven if their lives were to end tomorrow. But I pray that they would take hold of the promise by faith, and that faith that needs to be placed in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we thank you that it's a certain promise and that your only son was given to secure that promise. So we thank you for the lessons that we learned from Sarah's life and uh, help us to be mindful of those. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we get to see our faith in action. And we thank you that you love us consistently and you work through us even when our faith is weak. Even when we are faithless, God, your word says that you remain faithful. And for that, we're so thankful. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.